Our scripture text for this evening comes from the book of 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 52. We will read to chapter 15, verse 23. Would you please stand this evening for the reading of God's word? Beginning in chapter 14, verse 52, hear now the word of God. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and cam and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Taliam, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay, lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them for all that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction the word of the lord came to samuel i regret that i have made saul king for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments and samuel was angry and he cried to the lord all night And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel said to Saul, came to Saul, and Saul said to him, blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we've devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. He said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction, 
But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths in our hearts this evening. Let's pray together. Father, we need your help. Send your spirit tonight to lift our spirits, lift our eyes, and lift up our hearts to love and treasure what your word has for us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When our passage opens, it's been a time of political success for Saul, it seems. Uh, Even though he's been rejected by God already for his repeated rebellion, God has still allowed him to succeed, even though Israel isn't destroyed or devastated. Well, Samuel comes to Saul, and he comes to him early in the narrative with a direct command from God, telling him specifically, without lisping, without hesitation, that he has to completely destroy Amalek. And he says it in these words, devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them. So just notice the way that God, when he speaks to Saul, he doesn't leave any ambiguity. He doesn't leave any ambiguity at all as to what they are supposed to do. And so in our passage tonight, Saul successfully prosecutes his battle against the Amalekites. The problem is what happens after the battle. That is what is so noteworthy. And so three things define the post-battle situation. Those three things are dark revolt, divine regret, and a dismal result. So if you thought that Saul couldn't get much more disappointing, well, prepare to go a little deeper into the disappointment tonight because there is still room for him to disappoint, which he certainly does. First, tonight, we see dark rebellion. After the battle with the Amalekites is is over, that's when the trouble begins. And I will just read you verses 8 and 9 to remind you what happens. It says, And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people... Spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. So there are at least two ways Saul disobeys here. We could probably go deeper and find more. But I just want to just very lightly look at these two ways he disobeys. First, he disobeys in how he deals with the spoil. God told them, he said, go and strike the Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. He says this without ambiguity. Now, why would God do this, by the way? Um, Wouldn't having Amalek's stuff make them stronger? 
Wouldn't it strengthen the position of the Israelites in the world if they had these things? Well, it, it might mean strength in a worldly sense. They may have more things, have a higher position, uh, be more comfortable, but it would also mean that they would fall in love with these things and these possessions. And they would be physically strengthened, but they'd be spiritually weakened. So in the command to destroy all these things, God is telling the Israelites something. He's telling them the things of this world are going to corrupt you. They're going to twist your loves and they will eventually ruin you. And fleeing from them requires a radical move. You can think of it in a New Testament sense, the way that Jesus puts it. He says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Right? Matthew 5, 30, that is a very radical call that Jesus makes in that passage. Destroying this property is an expression of devotion to God's priorities, right? So to destroy these goods is to cut off their right hand. God is calling them to cut off their right hand here, and they aren't willing to do it. And here's the question we should deal with, and we should think of it very directly and exactly the kind of categories Jesus puts it in. What are the things in your life that you should absolutely destroy before they destroy you? It could be anything. It could be anything. Each of us have different weaknesses in our lives, different doors that are ajar that would allow the evil one to come in and ruin us. And and only you know what your specific weaknesses are. And the things that God is calling you to destroy may be very mundane, right? So if, you are, if you're consumed by greed, if you're consumed with discontentment, with wanting more, you may need to take radical steps in your life, right? You may need to burn those things away. Now, I don't know what's feeding your discontentment. I don't know what would be feeding greed for you. It could be anything. It could be social media. Social media statistics show has a way of feeding discontentment. It has a way of feeding uh, our sense that there's more that we need, that there's more that we want. What does cutting off your right hand look like when it comes to that temptation, if that's your temptation? It may be something more painful and gripping, something less mundane. Are you fighting through addictions? There may be people, there may be sources of that addiction that need to be out of your life. Let's get really uncomfortable for a moment. Are you captive to things like pornography? If you can't escape the things that lure you away by sheer willpower, then God is telling you to get radical in how you battle against those things. What does that look like? It, it, it looks like radical steps, right? Cutting those things off, cutting those options off in your life. It may involve techn- technological decisions. It may involve things that you don't have experience with, but that you know you need help with. Uh, blocking software on your computer. Uh, some kind of, of device on your network to monitor what you're doing. Accountability with other people. All right, Whatever it is, God is calling you to cut off the options that are setting out to ruin you. Cut off your hand, Jesus says. Pluck out your eye, Jesus says. And God is telling Israel to get rid of whatever tempts them to sin. But see, when the call goes out to Israel to do it, they don't do it. They are not willing to do it. They're holding on. They, they keep the stuff. 
They keep the stuff, but they, they get rid of some of the stuff. They, they take these sort of, they go through the motions so that it, you could look at the situation from afar. And if you squinted, you could say, ah, yes, Israel is definitely handling this situation. They appear to be obeying God. Everything is good. And then yet you hear that bleeding of the sheep. And you hear the lowing of the oxen. And you can tell they haven't done it. They haven't done it. And God, you see, he sees, he doesn't see from afar with squinty eyes. He sees with great specificity and detail. He sees everything. And so they keep the stuff. And these things capture the hearts of Israel. And so that's the first way that he disobeyed, by not getting rid of the spoil. Now, the second way that God, did, that, uh, <laughs> that uh, Saul disobeys is how he deals with Agag. I want you to think about this. In verse 3, Samuel is absolutely clear. Without a doubt, he says, Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman. He is commanding him to kill Agag here. He is a man. (laughs) He told him, Kill all the men. It is explicit. There is no exception given here for the king. Now, Saul kills the rest of the people. So why would Saul do this? Why would he spare Agag? After all, Agag surely would have killed him if the shoe was on the other foot. Calvin has a thought, and I can't help but agree with him. It's usually the case, but not always. But Calvin says he preserved him to show him off. He says that that is the way of the kings of old. It was the way of the kings of old that you would spare your opponent and keep him at your mercy so that you could show everyone how powerful you were. Right? It isn't enough to be rid of your enemies. Saul wanted people to see his greatness and even to see how magnanimous and kind he was and also at the same time how powerful he was. Right? What Saul is doing here is he is behaving just like the kings of all the other nations. That's exactly what he's doing when he spares Agag. And then Calvin says there's deeper sin here because, you see, God told him to kill Agag and he didn't. And Calvin, Calvin says it so devastatingly. He says, here then was Saul's sin. He wished to be more merciful than God. He wished to be more merciful than God. Saul threw Agag into prison when he should have killed him. And Agag was God's enemy and Saul should have destroyed him. And instead, he kept him alive And that act of disobedience came from a spiritual sickness in Saul's own heart. And the command to totally destroy this enemy teaches us something about our own spiritual lives. This is a lesson in fighting tooth and nail against our sin. John Owen was very famous for his saying, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Right? There is no neutral ground when it comes to sin. Either you are making progress against it or it is making progress against you. There's no middle ground where you just sort of live together and there's harmony. That's not the idea because it's always seeking to kill you and undermine you and destroy you and ruin your heart. There was another Puritan named Edward Reynolds. I just want to read just a snippet of what he says. And I think this is so powerful. He says, never give up so long as any sin remains. When people kill snakes or vipers, they don't stop striking them until they are certain they are dead. That's true. I killed a baby snake the other day and I chopped and chopped and chopped and chopped far longer than I should have. 
Um, He says, that's what we do with snakes. We kill until we are sure it's dead, and then we kill it with fire, right? That's what we do with critters like that. He says, sin, like the thief on the cross, when it is fast nailed and kept from its old tyranny, will as much as it can revile and spit out venom on Christ. Therefore, do not give in. Break its legs. Crucify it clean through till it is quite dead. None can pray or turn to God in truth or hope to be delivered from judgment and mercy so long as he holds fast any known sin. We are willing to pray for the pardon of them all. We would have, we would have none hurt us. But when it comes to parting and taking all away, this we cannot get away. Some are fat and delicate golden sins. We must not spare these as Saul did with Agag. What's the lesson? It isn't enough to hide our sins away. It isn't enough to chain our sins up and think we've stripped them of their power. We have to kill them. We have to cut off our sins at the level of desire. And that means fighting. That means a work of grace in our own hearts. It means refusing to accept our own hearts as they are. It means fighting with all we have against the worst desires of our own souls until we see God's love and God's desire come out on top. Saul may have been the ruler of Israel, but you are responsible for your own life and your own soul. Each of us are. You, Christian, in one sense at least, are the ruler of your own heart. And so what you love and what you cherish and what you hide but don't destroy will ultimately escape from the prison where Saul held Agag. The question is, will you obey God and make war against your sin or will you be merciful and see it live longer? That's the decision we have to make. That's the second way that Saul disobeyed God tonight by sparing Agag and letting him live. Now, what's the result of this, though, this dark rebellion that, that, that Saul takes, takes part in? Well, we see the second thing tonight that comes as a result, and that is divine regret. And this happens immediately after Saul's sin that we saw. I'm going to read this again from verse 10 and verse 11. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. Now, God says something extraordinary here. And we want, I want to spend some time thinking about what God says here and thinking about the implication of this. Because what God says here seems so scandalous. First, God charges Saul with two things. He says, first, he turned back from following me. So, so he abandoned what he should have kept with. To not kill Agag in God's eyes, is the same as altogether rejecting God. Partially keeping God's commandment is as good as not keeping God's commandment. We, We can't live lives of halfway obedience. We must be completely obedient. That's what God calls for us. Second, God says, Saul has not performed all my commandments. In other words, he committed a sin of omission. We talk about sins of commission, which means we actively do something that God tells us not to do. But then there's a such thing as a sin of omission, 
right? He neglected to do something he was supposed to do. So it's not that he did something positively sinful. It's that he didn't do something that was positively good. He was not supposed to spare anyone. He was supposed to destroy everyone. Total destruction was the call. It isn't that he did something wrong. It's that he didn't do something right. You see that? I suspect as Christians, we have a blind spot in our lives, and it is probably in the area of sins of omission. There are things that we have left undone. There are good things that we ought to do that we don't do. Things that our consciences tell us we need to take part in, things that we need to be helping with, um, things that we have fallen off on. Um, How troubled are we at the good that we're supposed to do and do not do? Think of all the positive commands there are in Scripture And you can actually see those positive commands by looking at the Ten Commandments. When we think of the Ten Commandments, we think of them as negatives, right? Uh, Don't have any other gods. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. You know, uh, don't steal. Don't kill. Don't covet, right? We think of all the negatives. And yet for every commandment, there's an obvious positive side as well, right? Every time uh, that God tells us do not murder, there's also a positive implication, which is we should be preserving life. That's a sin of omission if we don't preserve life. Um, The Eighth Commandment tells us don't steal. That's negatively. That's put negatively. But the positive side of that is we need to be free with our money. We need to give when people are in need. We're not supposed to be foolish with our money. We're supposed to be wise with our money. We're supposed to be frugal. We're not supposed to be wasteful people. And so when we are not frugal, we're committing a sin of omission. We're not spending our money wisely. And this is the case with all of God's law. You could go through all of the Ten Commandments and you could find sins of omission that we commit all the time. And our consciences are never troubled by it because we don't think of all the things that we've left undone. Saul's sin here tonight is a sin of omission. He wasn't just supposed to keep from doing bad things. He was supposed to do the good thing. He was supposed to devote all of this to destruction. It is a sin of omission. Are there things in your life that you've left undone that you ought to have done? Are there things that you have felt guilty because you didn't do them and you knew that you should have? People who came to you for help, families in need that you turned your back on. Just because you may not have positive guilt on your conscience doesn't mean that you've done the good that God had for you. Sins of omission are Very real sins. They are just as real as our sins of commission. We need to think more uh, carefully about those sins. And we need to address the way God speaks here. And this is what's really scandalous about God's words to Saul because, or to Samuel. He says, I regret that I have made Saul king. Now, this is what we call a theological problem. And I'll try to express what the problem is. Um, At first glance, it maybe doesn't seem all that problematic. It depends on how carefully you're thinking about what's being said here. Um, Is it really possible for an all-knowing, all-good, all-powerful God to have regret? That's That's a great group discussion question. You could sit around with your friends and ask that question. Is it possible for someone who always gets his way and knows everything that's going to happen and is absolutely good 
to regret? Is there anything he could do that he could wish that he didn't do? If God can regret, then it means he can make mistakes. And if he can make mistakes, it implies that he's not in control. And if he's not in control, then it means he doesn't really know the future. And if he doesn't really know the future, then in what meaningful sense is he really God at all? Do you see the problem here? Regretting is not something that God does. When you look at the church fathers, you look at the early church, they're wrestling through this question as well. They're thinking about this just as much, I think, as we do. And one of the things that Augustine says is he says this is not literal regret, not the kind of regret you and I have. Um, Literal regret would mean that God admits sinful wrongdoing. And there are some things that Augustine says, there are some things that are praiseworthy for people that can't be present in God. Um, he gives the example of shame. He says, we, we praise fear of God. We praise fear of God, but the thing is, God can't fear God. And, and he also can't experience shame, even though we admire those things when people experience them, right? We, we admire regret in people because it means someone is coming to terms with their sin. They're coming to terms with their limitations. And so we look up to somebody who goes through those things because they're willing to admit things about themselves. And, and, and even though God says here that he regrets, throw a new wrench into it, look in verse 29 in next week's passage, and it says, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret for he is not a man that he should have regret and so what we understand then is that God isn't like us he is different from us he is distinct from us and so when God does say things about himself that can really only be true of human beings we have a fancy word for that we have a fancy word for that in theology and it is your ten dollar word for tonight and the the word is anthropomorphism that's a good word uh, anthropomorphism. And, and all that means is describing something like a human, even though it is not actually human. That's what we mean when we say anthropomorphism. And so you see, God is so different from us in terms of how he knows, how he interacts with the world, that it is impossible for him to regret the way that we regret. Right? We can make decisions And then later realize that those were bad decisions because either we had sinful motives in making them or because we had incomplete information. But that isn't possible with God. He always has complete information. He always has good motives. And he always knows everything that's going to happen. And so Tertullian, who was writing in the third century, says very clearly that God was not ignorant how the situation was going to turn out. So that's not the problem with this right now. God knows what's going to happen. The moment that he, that he makes Saul king, he knows what's going to come about. And so what the church father said is that God is using the strongest possible language conceivable here. He's almost using scandalous language to get across just how profound Saul's guilt here is. That's what he's doing. Um, This is how Tertullian puts it. He says, God burdened the guilt of Saul with the confession of his own repentance. I'll just say that again to hear what he's saying. He's laying a new sin on Saul when he says this. He says, God burdened the guilt of Saul with the confession of his own repentance. 
And so God is even laying his regret at Saul's feet. He is blaming Saul for something that would be unthinkable in God. Saul isn't just guilty of this sin. He's guilty of being the source of God's regret. In a sense, it's almost a forceful, scandalous way for God to tell Saul, you have done something so wicked that you could almost say you have sullied the very perfection and holiness of God himself. How dare you? You see the weight of what God says here in verse 11. So when he says that he regrets, he is laying this incredible burden upon the shoulders of Saul. He is saying something of himself that he actually says in verse 29 is impossible. And then he's saying, Saul, you're guilty of even that. And so the divine regret is really another accusation, another chain of guilt upon the heart and the mind and the conscience of Saul. Third tonight, we see the dismal result. It's the response of Saul to all of this. Samuel tells Saul what God has said, and you could summarize Saul's response like this. I did what you said, sort of. That's kind of what Saul says to him. I sort of did what you said. I went on the mission. I devoted the Amalekites to destruction, technically. Um, Sure, I I left their leader alive, but the Amalekites are dead. They, They won't bother us anymore. Saul responds to the accusation with defensiveness. You know, sort of a squinting situation again. You know, it's like if you squint hard enough, what I did almost looks like obedience. You know, maybe I, maybe I spudged the details a bit. And, and, but the people, they're the ones who didn't destroy the spoils, not me. Not me. So again, you see the blame passing once again. Saul doesn't see that this problem goes deeper than his actions, right? He's so hung up on the technicalities That he's forgotten that God can see his heart through all of this. None of this uh, subtlety that he's trying to employ to wiggle out of this is going to work. He thinks he can lawyer his way out of this. He can't do that. You can't lawyer your way out of guilt. Especially before a holy God who knows everything that was in your heart before you even thought it. And what God sees is an upside down heart. That's exactly what God sees. Uh, There was a reformer, Johann Gerhard, who puts it this way. Rather than loving God, Saul loved himself and his own devotion. Saul loved himself and his own devotion. Why is that? Because, Gerhard says, if Saul had truly loved God, he would not have hated the commandment of God to burn the spoils. And there's a serious warning here. All sin can ultimately be traced to a self-love instead of a divine love. Sin happens when we love ourselves more than we love God. Sin doesn't ultimately happen up here. It's not our actions where sin really happens, you know. It's uh, sort of like a puppet show, right? My kids were putting on a puppet show for me a couple of weeks ago. And here's what they did. They got behind the table. They had a million puppets. And what I saw was this. The little puppets talking to each other. I'm not going to get behind the pulpit. (laughs) Shrink down. But I saw the little puppets. 
But guess where the real action was? The real action was under the table. And as I look under the table, here's what I see. I see these adorable little kids and they're moving around and they're making faces and they're very excited and they're giving action to all the things that you see up here. We make a mistake when we think that sin is all the stuff happening up here, all the stuff that people can see. No, the real show is what's going on under the table. For Saul... What's going on under the, t- under the table is self-love and a rejection of God. It happens deep down in our hearts at the level of affection. So we make the mistake very often of thinking, you know, what my biggest problem is I keep doing bad things. That is a mistake. It's not wrong for us to want to live holy lives. The problem is we make the mistake of thinking that the best way to deal with sin in our lives is to stop doing that. Just quit doing that. Don't do that anymore. Don't do that bad thing. Do this good thing. And we make the mistake of never getting to the heart and asking, why do I want to do such bad things? And asking God, crying out to God, give me a changed heart, create in me a new heart. Created me a right spirit, asking like the psalmist does in Psalm 51. Created me a new heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David is asking for something Saul won't do. David is saying, change my heart, change my motivations, change the way I think. Then I'll be the man I need to be. And we find out that what we love and what we hate drives how we live. And that's Saul here. For Saul, Saul is more important than God. And so the obedience is missing and so is the love. In the end, God doesn't leave Saul in suspense. He doesn't leave Saul wondering what he really wants. He tells him what he wants in verses 22 and 23. And they are words of disappointment. And they are words of condemnation. But they also point Saul outside of himself for the hope that he needs if he'll follow it. And in the Bible, we frequently find these summarizing statements where God simplifies his commands and boils them down to a few words. Let me give you a couple examples of the way the Bible does this. In Deuteronomy 10, 12, it says, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, right? It's a summarizing statement about what God wants from us. He boils down chapters and chapters and chapters, books of the Bible, into one verse. You see another summarizing statement in Matthew 22, 37. Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Right? It's a summarizing statement. What does God want? Well, he gives a similar summarizing statement here in verse 22 tonight, doesn't he? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. If you ask God, what do you want? What do you want? If Saul asked God, what do you want from me? What do you want from me? I keep trying to please you. I keep trying to do these things my way, but I'm trying. I have good intentions, at least I think I do. And if he asks God, what do you really want from me? Wouldn't this verse really says it? God wants him to listen and obey and love him. Right? He's getting to the core of Saul. 
He's getting to the core of what drives Saul. He says, love me and then show that love through obedience. That's all. That's all. See, tonight's passage is a passage about obedience. It's a passage where we see the importance of doing what God says. We've seen what God wants. And yet we've also seen the problem. His, his loves are, are disordered, right? He loves himself. He doesn't love God. He's got no delight in God. It doesn't make him happy to please God. He doesn't want to please him. He wants to live for himself, and so he won't obey. He loves his own sense of right and wrong, but he doesn't love God's commandments. He has disordered affections. And this is a passage that leaves us empty-handed and and sad in a sense, right? It's not an uplifting passage necessarily, but Saul's disobedience is a picture of all our hearts. You know, apart from Christ, you and I are just like this. We, We don't love God. We don't obey. We love ourselves. And every person that we meet out there that lives in this world that doesn't know God is just like that. They don't love God. They won't obey. They love themselves. So where is the hope? Well, believe it or not, the hope is still in obedience. And yet it isn't in your obedience and it isn't in my obedience either. You see, there was only one man who ever loved God and obeyed him from the heart. What did Jesus say in John 14, 31? He said, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Someone loved God. Someone pleased God. Someone had rightly ordered desires. And it wasn't you, and it wasn't me, and it wasn't Saul. It wasn't even King David, really. It's Jesus, right? Jesus is the anti-Saul. Saul loves himself Jesus says, I love the Father. Christ loves God's command, while Saul hates God's command. You see how Jesus ties love and obedience together here? If you love, then you obey. The author of Hebrews brings this all together. He says, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. He's talking about Jesus. So do you see our answer tonight? You see the problem You see, the dilemma that that this passage shows us is that we have far more in common with Saul than we would ever like to admit. And if you just think about that, you'll lose hope. But you see, the hope in the passage tonight isn't in Saul and it isn't in us. Look at where the hope is. The hope is in the Son. Jesus has done the will of God, just like the Bible promised us that he would. Jesus did love the Father. Jesus did obey the Father. And so the hope tonight isn't in Saul because he failed and he disobeyed. Just like you fail and I fail and we all disobey. So the hope isn't in any of our hearts if we keep looking back to ourselves and thinking about our own successes and thinking about the ways that we really feel like we have pleased God, we are going to fall apart. That is not going to hold. The hope tonight is found by looking outside of ourselves toward Christ as God sets him before us. He loved the Father. He obeyed the Father. And he stood in our place and did it for his people. There is security. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, there is no hope for any of us except in your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to understand that the heart really is where our disobedience comes from. Give us a superior love for you. Not so that we can obey and earn your love, but so that we can see and know that we do love you already because of what you have done for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.